One of the members of this church texted me this week with the following message. Can't wait to hear what you have to say about Ecclesiastes. And I thought to myself, you know, I can't wait there. If you uh, receive the um, church-wide emails um, we send once a week, we inform in that email, one of the first things we inform in that email every week is what is going to be preached the next Sunday. We are starting today a new series on the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've encouraged you, if you had a chance to read that uh, email and to actually read what it said, we encourage you to read the passage of Scripture on which we will uh, preach on, to read that ahead of time throughout the week so that you come ready and prepared and wonder what, what will be said this coming Sunday from this passage. And the book of Ecclesiastes is one of those books that makes you wonder, what, what will I say? And as I, I've, I read this book uh, several weeks ago in preparation of starting to, to think through this new series, um, my heart was, was conflicted because there's things in it that are so pessimistic, that are so sad. If you're a pessimist, you might think this is the best book of the Bible. Because it points to everything that you think about life. Pessimism. Vanity. Now, if you're an optimist, you might wonder if there was a mistake why this book is in the Bible. And what exactly are we supposed to get out of it? Well, this morning, my hope and my prayer is that we would get to see a panoramic view of this book. uh, What it is about. It is a shocking book. It's a unique book. It's a book like no other in all of the Bible. And uh, my hope is that we get to see and, and, and understand the perspective how we should read this book. Because if we don't read it carefully and rightly and appropriately, we might actually get the wrong meaning out of it. Especially if you are picking out verses from it and taking it out of context. You might really do damage to your life if you are taking this book out of context. So I hope and pray that we will get a sense of what this book is about. And with that perspective, starting with next week, we'll start working through one passage at a time, one after another. But I invite you to open Scripture as a way to begin the series uh, to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I will read the introduction and the conclusion of this book uh, today. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. And then we will turn to chapter 12, uh, verses Uh, verses 9 through 14. Here's the word of the Lord for us. Hope you found your passage by this time, page number 553. Here's the word of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. 
All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Now turn to the end of this book, chapter 12, and we'll pick up the reading, verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs and great, with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. Would you bow with me in our prayer? Father, thank you that you have given us, even the book of Ecclesiastes, for our instruction. Thank you that in it you reveal yourself, and you reveal to us the meaning of life. Father, at the beginning of this series, we pray, and as we begin this sermon, we pray that your Spirit would be with us. Give us understanding. Give us light. Give us hearts open to hear your truth. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, friends, this morning my hope is that we would understand what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. In order to understand what it's about, we will look at several key characteristics uh, about this book, some key phrases and things that show up in this book. As a way to, um, to give you a sense of what, what this book is about, where we're going, with this, even with this introductory sermon, I want to talk to you this morning about the bad news and the good news of Ecclesiastes. The bad news and the good news of Ecclesiastes. Well, let's look at several characteristics of this book, and then we'll, we'll see why there's a bad news and why there's a good news and how come both are present in the same book. If the introduction of the book, of any book, is, gives us any idea about what a book is about, then what we have before us is a book about vanity. Did you notice how the book begins? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Did you notice a word that repeats often? Friends, before we get to, to the end of verse 2 of this book, we have the word vanity five times. Now, just think about that. 
Before the, before the second verse is, is ended, five times this, this idea shows up. And then we have it multiple times, many times throughout the book. As a matter of fact, there's another 30, or there's a total of 34 uses of this idea of vanity. Now, the Holman Christian Standard Bible uh, version, translation, translates this word as futility. Futility of futilities. All is futility, or absolute futility. Now, friends, this is not an encouraging introduction of any book of the Bible, of any book, let alone of the book of the Bible, especially to us when we live in a culture, a society, that uh, is obsessed with significance and influence and maximizing your self-potential, being the best you can be. Wow. Saying vanity of vanities, everything is vanity? Now, what is the meaning of this word vanity? If it shows up so often in this book, what does it mean? I want to make sure we understand what it does not mean. It doesn't mean meaningless in the sense of there's no meaning. That's not exactly what it means. Even though some translations translate this word as, as meaningless, don't think of it as like there's just no meaning in anything. Because you look around, you talk to people around you, if you were to say vanity of vanities or meaningless or futility of futilities, people might say, what's wrong with you? They, they might say that you are a very depressed person. They might say that you, you are going through a very low point in your life. In what way is the Bible saying and introducing this new book by the word vanity of vanities and still make sense and still be meaningful? What's the meaning of the word vanity? Well, it's not so much that there's no meaning in anything as much as that everything is transient, passing. Nothing lasts. If you were to look at any object, at any experience in your life, from the moment at which you stand in it, next to it, right there, you experience it, there's a lot of stuff in which we find great meaning in this life. We have me find meaning in families, in our relationships, in the things we do with life, in the work we do. We should find meaning in the work we do. We should find meaning in, in that on which we spend our time on. So from the experience of here and now, there's so many things in life that have meaning, and we should find that meaning, and we should live a life that's full of meaning. So from the perspective of, of living life here and now, there is meaning. And yet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to look at life from a different perspective. Not just what's here and now, but if we could look at life from the perspective of death. If we could travel to the edge of life and go off the cliff of that life, and experience death, if we were to look at our life experiences from that perspective of death, what is meaningful? What truly lasts? What truly will stand forever? 
Another key phrase besides that will that, help us understand the meaning of, of vanity is the, a, a question or phrase that is occasionally put out by, by the preacher. What gain? What gain? What advantage? Uh, we actually see this phrase as early as verse 3 in our own text in chapter 1. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, this idea of advantage or gain, it shows up a number of other times. And sometimes the, the, ecclesia- the preacher of Ecclesiastes will say, well, some folly or, or wisdom is better than, than folly for a time until you die. And when you die, you realize, will it have mattered if I've lived my life in wisdom or in folly? When you get to the grave, imagine a dialogue between worms. Hey, I got a Nobel Prize winner here. Another one said, yeah, this guy, he was homeless. He didn't have much. He actually had nothing. Hey, here's what I got. Do you think they'll fight over that? Do you think they'll fight if, if they have someone who, who has owned lots of stuff and lots of wealth and properties? Do you think they'll really be excited about it versus one who had nothing? From the perspective of death, how do you make sense of the meaning of life? What gain is there from the perspective of death? Listen to, to, uh, to chapter 2, just a, a few verses in chapter 2, verse 9 um, through 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands have done. And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Did you hear that word? Nothing to be gained under the sun. Even though this man had everything, even though this man had accumulated everything his heart desired, he looks at the end of it and says, There's nothing to be gained. You know why he can say that? Or why he says that? He says it from the perspective of death. Because nothing that you gain here on earth, none of that you take with you. In other words, what gain is there in this life? A similar language of gaining is used by Jesus in the Gospels. What gain is it to man to, lo- to win or to gain the whole earth, the whole world? If he loses his soul. And the answer given by Ecclesiastes is what gain is there? The answer is nothing. Vanity. Another phrase that describes this idea of vanity, it's not so much meaningless or meaninglessness. Um, it's, it's, another phrase is a chasing after the wind. This is another phrase that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. A, chase, a chasing after the wind. This is helpful because it tells us 
that vanity is something that's, you, you, you keep running after something, and you, you might get something, but it's not going to last. And the best picture that the, that, the, that the preacher of Ecclesiastes can give for us for chasing after stuff that we think will be valuable, we think will, be, will gain us influence and power and, and, and satisfaction and joy, the picture that, can, that he can give us is chasing after the wind. Have you ever chased the wind? Have any of you done that? None of you have. Why not? Why, why, why don't you go and chase after the wind? Because you know it's not worth it. <laughs> because even when you think you got it, he'll go away. You know that about the wind, right? You're, you're logic, we're logical enough and we know it's, it's worthless to chase the wind. And yet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes wants to show us that life itself is that way too. And we should not embrace life in such a way that as if we want to hold on everything we have because it's going to go away. Everything. Another key phrase, why can the Ecclesiastes say all this uh, about, about life? Why can he speak about life in this way? Because there's another key phrase in Ecclesiastes, and this one shows up often, a lot, and you really need to understand this perspective. It's a phrase, under the sun, or under heaven. Shows up all the time. Even in verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Ecclesiastes challenges us to think about the meaning of life under the sun. This is one of the key angles from which to look, we can look at life. But when he thinks about, when he uses the phrase under the sun, he's speaking about that which, we, that which can be observed by our eyes, that which can be experienced by our senses. If you were to look at life only with that which you can understand by your eyes and senses and physical experience, what you get is the book of Ecclesiastes. It's as if you look at life with God taken out of the picture. If you would consider life with God out of the picture, and there are some people who, who want to do that, who prefer to do that, who are not convinced of the existence of God, who are not, who are not sure whether or not this whole God thing matters in, in life. So for them, they look at life with God outside the picture. Well, the book of Ecclesiastes is actually a journey. How should we view life if God was out of the picture? Think about the preacher of Ecclesiastes and as an explorer who is willing to take us down that path, who actually experiences himself all that life can give him to the fullest, in the richest way, and to see where does that path of life apart from God, where does that life lead? If you want to see a picture of life apart from God and the meaning of life apart from God, read the book of Ecclesiastes. The reason why Ecclesiastes is taking us on that journey is to show us the barrenness of life apart from God. If we look at the meaning of life only from the perspective of what can be seen under the sun, 
The answer is disappointing. The answer is, it leads to vanity. You might enjoy it now. You might enjoy it in the perspective, from the perspective of the present. But look at it from the perspective of the end of life. Look at it from the perspective of death. Often uh, the, Ecclesiastes, the preacher of Ecclesiastes challenges us to consider life from the perspective of, of death. One of, the, one of the high points in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes is chapter 7, verse 2. One of the most challenging comparisons, actually. The preacher says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Now, friends, just pause there. If you had to choose between going to a funeral or to a party, and there's no obligations here. It's just your choice. It's not a matter of what you're obligated to do. Which one would you rather go to? Come on, say it. Party. Say it, right? That's it. That's what it is. We would rather go to a house of partying of joy, of celebration. And yet, the, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. Why? For that, or for he says, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it at heart. He's trying to, to make us look at life, not just from the experience of here and now, even life under the sun, not just from the experience of here and now, but from the experience and perspective of of death. From this perspective of death, all life is vanity and futility. You know why? Because it's passing. You know why? Because nothing of this life will last, and none of it can you take with you into the place of death. And if there is no God, then there's nothing after death. And then everything stops. Even the memories of our family members, the memories that children, our grandchildren will have of us, they will fade away. And those memories, while they can stay with our grandchildren, our family members, it won't help us anything. There'll be no meaning. There'll be no value in any of that. Nothing will stand the test of death. Well, this is one of the characteristics in the book. This is why there's vanity. This is what the meaning of vanity is. It's that everything is transient. Everything is passing. But there's another set of characteristics in this book. If we raise up our eyes above the sun, if we look at this life not just only at what is underneath the sun or under the sun or under heaven, but we look above it, we realize and we're challenged to consider there is a God. And what he does with life and creation changes everything. In Ecclesiastes 5, 2, the preacher says, God is in heaven and you are on the earth. He's challenging us to say, to see there is a God. And when we look at life from his perspective and how he puts it together, we come up with a different understanding of what life is all about. Throughout this book, God is described as the creator God from whom we have life. In Ecclesiastes 11.5, it says, As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. 
Actually, this God not only created all things, he's also in control of all things. He is a sovereign God. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we see him as a sovereign God. In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, we're told that there is a time for everything. There's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time for planting, a time for plucking up what is planted, a time for killing and a time for healing, a, life, a time for laughing and a time for weeping. And the list goes on and on. And it ends with this phrase, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Who made, who determined the time? God did. God is sovereign. God is in control of all creation. The point is that God has established uh, these times and he is in control of everything. Also, the Ecclesiastes, the preacher of Ecclesiastes challenges us to look at this life from God's perspective. And actually, to enjoy it. It's amazing that no other book of the Bible encourages us to enjoy life more than the book of Ecclesiastes. What's amazing, though, that the times when it says about enjoying this life, it's, it's in the context where it has made reference to the fact that everything we have in this life is from God. So when we recognize that everything in this life is from God and that He's the creator, He's the sustainer, He's in control of it all, we come to actually be able to enjoy life, to be filled with joy. One of the characteristics actually of God in the book of Ecclesiastes, besides being creator and sovereign and in control of all things, is that God is a generous God. Oftentimes in the book we see phrases that God has given us things, or all things come from God. So many times we, we read these, uh, this idea of receiving things from God. The proper response to this God, the fact that he, is, he does exist, he's in control and involved in our world, is that we should fear him and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's how the book ends. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, the fear of God is mentioned several times throughout this book. The fear of God is not only the beginning of wisdom, but in the book of Ecclesiastes, the fear of God is the beginning of joy, the beginning of contentment. I love how one of the commentators, Michael Eaton, described the book of, of Ecclesiastes. He says, the preacher wishes to deliver us from a rosy-colored, self-confident, godless life with its inevitable cynicism and bitterness, and from trusting in wisdom, pleasure, wealth, and human justice or integrity, he wishes to drive us to see that God is there, that he is good, that he is generous, and that only such an outlook makes life coherent and fulfilling. Yet notice how the book ends. Notice how the book ends, the very, the very last part of the book on the reality, not only of God, not only to fear God, not only to keep His commandments. Why? Because God will bring everything to judgment. And friends, when you think about the judgment of God, we don't like to, we don't like to think about that. Right? Because it, it's not a pleasant truth to be reminded of the judgment of God. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, the judgment of God is actually the turning point of the two perspectives. As a matter of fact, in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
It is the news about the judgment of God that brings us great hope. You might wonder how. How can a message about the judgment of God be a message of, of great hope in the book of Ecclesiastes? Here's why. Because the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a judgment. Because of that, it tells us everything matters. Everything matters. Every deed, every thought, every word. Because God will bring it to judgment. And this is the amazing thing about the book of Ecclesiastes. It starts with vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then it ends with a message, everything matters. Everything. How can a book start there and get here? What makes a corner? What turns that message around? And the answer is the judgment of God. The judgment of God is a great hope that helps us turn away from our, from our, 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 our trap of meaninglessness or vanity and transientness and to realize that actually everything, all of that will be brought before the judgment seat of God. That's why for the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the certainty of the judgment of God is like a rock under which we can be crushed or a rock on which we can build. The coming judgment of God makes every detail of our life matter. So what is the book of Ecclesiastes about? We looked at characteristics. What is the book of Ecclesiastes about? Let's, let's pull these together and uh, draw some, some, some conclusions here. The book of Ecclesiastes can be summarized with these two news, a bad news and a good news. The bad news is all is vanity. All is transient. All is passing away. The good news is everything matters. Everything. Now, how can Christians say both? How can we as Christians say both news? Well, life apart from God, and we must be able to say this, life apart from God is vanity. Why is it important for us to learn that without being pessimistic, without falling into the pessimism that we see in this book? Why do we need to be reminded of that? Well, we should learn it. We should learn this bad news so that we can speak to those who look at life only from what can be seen under the sun. To them, we should challenge them to, to look at life even if we were to go with their perspective of life under the sun, walk them through and help them see, move their perspective to see that life under the sun from the perspective of death and help them see the meaninglessness of it, the vanity of it, how passing it is. It is a barren life. But we should also learn that news for our own hearts because even, we, even those who are Christians who have put their trust in God and who look to God for meaning and purpose, how easy it is for our own hearts to wander away from God and wander in our own self-centeredness, in our own humanistic way of looking at life. We are tempted every day to get back on the path of looking at life only from this perspective of under the sun. For us, it is such a medicine for our soul 
when we're faced with temptations of materialism, of consumerism, of looking at, at, at satisfaction and joy in life only from that which we can earn or, or accomplish or do with our money or wealth or pleasure. For such moments, for such temptations, the book of Ecclesiastes is a great medicine for the soul. Apart from God, all of life is vanity. As Christians, we must learn this bad news of futility of life as we face death apart from God. But we must also learn the good news, the news that God will bring a day of judgment, the God who who made everything, who sustains everything. For him, every detail of this creation matters. This is why we should develop a fear of God that helps us to see all of life from the perspective of that day of judgment. But the, the crazy news is that none of us can face God on that day of judgment on our own perfection, on our own righteousness. That is where Jesus is, is reminding us, what can man gain if he were to, to buy the whole world and yet lose his soul, nothing. He'll gain nothing. But standing in that day of judgment, alone, without anything, will also be a terrible news. That's where the news of, of the gospel comes in. That God actually has prepared a way for us so that through Jesus we can stand before him on that day of judgment. It is through the the, the righteousness of Christ. It is through his sacrifice for us that we can stand before God on that day with a righteousness that is not ours, but with a righteousness that has been accomplished for us by Christ. Friends, facing death without God makes everything in life be meaningless. But facing death without anything before God will make us come on, under the judgment of God. The only thing that brings life meaning and purpose is when we understand the one provision that God has given us, provided for us, so that we can face that day of judgment with the righteousness of Christ. Oh, friend, if, you've, if you have been used to looking at life apart from God and not computing God in the picture of your life, I want to challenge you this morning through what Ecclesiastes is telling us Realize that none of this life matters from the perspective of a death, that death. And yet the one thing that makes this life matter in everything is a judgment that we will face before God. And yet on that day of judgment, the only thing that will matter is none, nothing that what we've done in this life in terms of accomplishment or good works or, or trying to live a good life, the only thing that will matter on that day will be whether or not we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ whether or not we have repented of our sin and trusted in Christ to be our Savior, whether we have chosen to follow Him and put our trust in Him. And the amazing part, one of the promises of that turning to God by faith is that when we, are, we turn to God by faith, God enables us to keep His commandments so that there is an obedience that comes from, from a true, genuine faith. And that faith, that faith that manifests itself in repentance and in a, in a new love, in a new obedience to God, it is that with which we come to that day of judgment before him. So the main purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to help us to make God the focal point of our lives by reminding us that we're mortal, by reminding us that everything about us is transient. It's moving. Nothing will stand forever. 
Abandon the illusion of self-importance. Faith li face life squarely. Accept it with fear and trembling that we are dependent upon God for everything. So what is Ecclesiastes trying to do for us? Ecclesiastes is trying to teach us, stop pretending that what is mortal is enough for us. Stop pretending that what is mortal is enough for us. Because there's a day of judgment. Ecclesiastes deals with the fallenness of humanity in a way that no other religion does. No other religion will speak so utterly foolish and full of meaninglessness as Christianity does about life seen apart from God. But it also offers an authentic view, an authentic turn where we can find the true meaning and true purpose of life when we understand it and see it in light of our Creator. Oh, friends, I pray that we, as we begin this new series of the book of Ecclesiastes, we will learn from this explorer who has explored the depths of the meaningless of, meaninglessness of life. He will take us to places where we will not want to go. He will tell us truths that we will not be willing to hear because in our optimistic, self-maximizing potential culture, this stuff will be like cold shower. But we must hear it so we get a better sense of truly what is enough for us. Nothing mortal will be enough for us. So let's stop pretending. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that in your wisdom, you have allowed in your in your revelation of yourself a book that will challenges will challenge us about the utter transientness of life to remind us that we human beings are nothing but a vapor that passes away to remind us that really there apart from you there is no true significance in this life yeah, Father, thank you that you help us to understand that in the midst of that deafness, you light a beam of hope that indeed in light of your future judgment, everything matters. Mighty God, we pray that you would help us take to heart this truth. Help us to understand you. Help us to understand life in light of you. Help us to understand the meaning and the value of life in light of your perspective. Father, help us to be ready to meet you on that day of judgment. And help us to cherish and look forward for that day by being assured of your righteousness that you have made available for us in Christ. Oh, Father, if there is anyone here this morning who does not have that assurance, who does not have that joy and that, that peace of being assured of your pardon, for that day of judgment. We pray that this morning you would draw those hearts to you, that you would convict them and, and impress upon their hearts a willingness and a desire to respond to your gospel. 
Father, we pray that those of us who have responded to that news, that we may cherish that news, that we may see that news as a gift of you, that we may look at life as a gift of you, from you. Father, help us to glorify you with everything in this life. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.